the Anesthesia Podcast. Welcome to the May issue of the Anesthesia Podcast. And I'm delighted to have with us today uh, Professor Tim Cook from Bar and also Matt Wiles from Sheffield. And we're going to be talking about the topic of personal protective equipment during the COVID-19 pandemic. But that also strays into lots of interrelated topics such as airway management, infection control, use of resources and lots of other areas that people will find interesting. So let's start with a question for Professor Cook. Can you tell us a little bit about why you decided to write the article and how it came about? I'm in an unusual situation. Perhaps it will be an irritating situation for some of the people listening to the podcast. So I have, I've been sent home from my by my department for health reasons. So I'm not at work. So I have more time than some people have, particularly in you know six weeks a month ago, than other people have to read um, and uh, gather the literature together. And I found that some of the information that was coming out about PPE was confused and certainly confusing to me. And so I read around the subject uh, and tried to put it together in what I hoped was a more coherent uh, and clearer way than, than some of the descriptions I'd seen hitherto. And Matt, you've also been quite forthright about some of your opinions on social media about personal protective equipment. Can you tell us a little bit about why you found this topic so interesting and why you Oh, uh, the need to um, to talk about it. Locally, I was one of the trainers for our PPE teams getting to the theatres and ITU ready to go. Um, and this is quite an unusual situation because you see the effects of um, guidelines and published research and for the first time ever, we've had sort of a healthcare crisis, if you like, in an era of social media and internet availability. And so everyone has access to everything. They have access to a lot of opinion, a lot of shared articles, a lot of infographics. Um, and certainly when you're talking to the staff on the ground, this actually led to a huge amount of anxiety and lots of questions. So in a similar fashion to Tim, it was almost like a, a drive to say, actually, I need to have a better understanding of this to try and separate the wheat from the chaff. And Tim, this is a, a strange topic because it's something that people find, uh, find quite emotive subjects, especially for frontline healthcare staff and those working with patients with COVID-19. Do you feel that that makes it worthy of uh, someone to come along and bring all the evidence together and try and make sense of it and simplify it? Yeah, I, I think a lot of fear is born out of misunderstanding. And I think fear is also generated by poor communication. And I think both of those have, have surrounded this topic. I I've witnessed locally my colleagues from what they tell me and what I've seen when when I was there before when we were training when we were getting ready in the month before we're ready in sort of I suppose late January middle of February you no know, genuine fear about what was coming from China and concerns about risk to individuals' health and of course it's been a an extraordinarily continues to be a devastating illness for for a minority of people uh, and a large number of people have been affected by it uh, but the the fear that people had i think to to some extent has been reduced by understanding the processes getting familiar with techniques which they were very unfamiliar with to start with and getting into the routine of it um, and the fear that I was aware of uh, locally, I think, has has diminished as time has gone by. I, I imagine that when a department has had a colleague, you know, a family member or someone, something like that, come through their intensive care, uh, then 
you know, that reverses that process pretty quickly. But I, I, I do think that the dynamic has changed during the epidemic surge as well. I guess one of the great things about the paper is that people can pick it up and read it and they can then judge for themselves what, what level of PPE is required for any given scenario that they're presented with. That was my main aim because uh, I think there has been a distraction, in, in, certainly in where are we now, April. So um, I think in the beginning of, uh, towards the end of March and beginning of April, the, the, the guidance was seemingly changing every few days. The terminology that was used by uh, different organisations, including by PHE, uh, was Public Health England, was, was, was not necessarily clear. Um, and the science that underlined some recommendations was also uh, not laid out as well as it might have been. And where there is um, a lack of clarity, then I think that leads to confusion. And so I've tried to not dumb it down, but, but make the principle simple. So if we understand the modes of transmission of the virus, then one can make decisions about what one should be wearing. Uh, now, um, of course, it's not quite as simple as the three by three table that I've got in, in, the, in the paper, um, but that goes a long way to enabling people to say, right, I'm going into a certain situation. This is what I believe about the risk of transmission in this particular setting. This is what I'm going to armour myself up with. Matt, I know that in your uh, role as an anaesthetist and a, a neurointensivist, that there are times when you come across other healthcare professionals that have perhaps been using the wrong level of PPE. Do you think overuse is more common than underuse? And do you think we're actually getting better at it? I think this is a very individual factor, people's perception of the required level of PPE. And it's been interesting. The problem, as Tim alluded to, has been the regular changing and often competing guidance that has come from various groups. My personal thing is that there's been a fair amount of distrust of some of the recommendations from PHP with a perception on the ground of perhaps people feeling that those recommendations were being made and altered on the basis of availability of PPE rather than necessarily from an evidence base. So it felt a bit more governmental rather than the advice you might receive from specialist societies, for example, which I think people felt was more about the welfare of the healthcare provider. There's been a move among some people to double up and feel that yeah, the best PPE is more PPE. And if in, any, if in any doubt, you should wear the most amount possible to feel happy. This is problematic for multiple levels of which Tim alluded to many in his article. It's certainly lots of studies showing that um, dropping of higher levels of PPE is associated with higher rates of contamination of the individual provider issue of resource allocation and availability um, of these sorts of things. And also we, we had situations where we had different staff members wearing different levels of PPE for the same procedure and you just can't help feeling that level. Someone must be doing it wrong. Not everyone can be right if you're doing different things. Yeah. And so um, a lot of those factors were where all the fear came from. And, and uh, exactly as Tim said, um, uncertainty and lack of clarity leads to fear. It, this is a disease that is minor for most people, but has been devastating for others. And as time goes on, people's contact with the disease, whether that's through work colleagues or families or local stories, becomes greater. And so that's, been, that's been a real challenge to find. One of the things that comes out of the article for me is that Broadly, a lot of the guidelines internationally are quite similar, but their interpretation of the use of PPE is very different. One of the 
controversial areas for me is is the concept of an aerosol uh, generating procedure. And Tim, you've listed a lot of these in your paper. I've seen on, on Twitter over the last 24 hours arguments about, for example, tracheal intubation. Should that be considered an aerosol generation procedure as compared with, for example, a, a patient on a ward who's COVID positive who's coughing? Uh, and some argue that the two metre limit on contact and that level of PPE is very different from for example, someone who's intubating a patient, how, how do we define what is, a, is and isn't an aerosol-generating procedure and, and why is there so much controversy around it? In an ideal world, so in, in, terms, of, in, in terms of the paper, what I've, all I've done is quoted what Public Health England define as, and I've specifically said that, that that's what Public Health England define as um, aerosol-generating procedures. And... There's quite a lot of complexity to it. So, so some uh, procedures, I believe, have been you know, properly studied in laboratory conditions and determined whether they generate aerosols, and then others haven't. And some procedures will generate uh, aerosols, respiratory aerosols, which is what we're really worried about. So, I, I, for instance, I've separated aerosols into respiratory generating aerosols, so um, uh, tracheal intubation, mask ventilation, essentially things that pressurise the air, the, the airway uh, in terms of interventions um, and separated those from surgical um, uh, aerosol generations when the, when the fluid that's being aerosolized is tissue fluid or blood. And given that the virus is, is relatively difficult to identify in those, in those fluids, those fluids are going to be a step down in terms of their effective risk. It doesn't mean there's no risk, but they're much they're, they're a different sort of aerosol generation. The other element is, is, for instance, thinking about tracheal intubation. So there's so there's there's issues about whether something is aerosol generating or whether it's a high risk procedure. So there's good evidence. That there's not much good evidence in general, but the best evidence um, around viral transmission. Um, in SARS, so that's a similar coronavirus to um, to, to COVID, is around tracheal intubation. That comes from a meta-analysis by Tran. Amongst all the procedures that were associated with an increase in healthcare uh, infection, tracheal intubation was most consistently, most reliably, and the data was most heterogeneous um, for tracheal intubation. So there's there's some discussion as to whether the act, well, I think the act of putting a tracheal tube into a patient who is paralysed is highly unlikely to be aerosol generating. But the procedure of going into the room, preparing a patient, preoxygenating them, inducing them, uh, managing their airway before intubation, intubating them, and then doing the things that you do after that. The risk of viral transmission is high. And in amongst that, there appears to be, um, with that increased risk of transmission, it's likely that there's aerosol generation. So I think that it is um, not at all unreasonable that intubation teams or individuals uh, doing those procedures uh, adopt airborne precaution um, PPE. And remembering, of course, that the PPE that you that you wear is only one part of the precautions you take, which we perhaps talk about separately. But yeah, I think I think the list is complicated. There is there are different lists, quite notably different lists in some of the recent papers that come out. Um, and I think people are there. There is an issue of where an, whether an aerosol is being generated, whether the aerosol is infective, whether there's an increased risk of infection what the aerosol contains. So it's quite complicated. And I think it's 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 particularly relevant to focus on uh, the generation of aerosols from respiratory manoeuvres. And I think the top of the um, PPE list, so that is 
uh, tracheal intubation, mask ventilation, performance of tracheostomy, uh, and, and non-invasive ventilation are probably the four that are most important. At the very start of this pandemic, there was a lot of anxiety around non-invasive ventilation and high-flow nasal oxygen. Do you think that's been overstated somewhat? And, and do you think people are less cautious about their use now? I think they're different. Again, in that in that TRAN paper, which is a systematic review, um, that was suggested that non-invasive ventilation is quite high up there with a, with a, a ratio between people who were infected. If you were involved in non-invasive ventilation, in the SARS epidemic, you were probably four times more likely to be infected with SARS than if you weren't at a six with tracheal intubation. But I think that was based just on one paper. The papers were they're obviously not randomized controlled trials, but they were um, retrospective cohort um, uh, studies. So the, the evidence base is not very strong. I think non-invasive ventilations and CPAP is quite different from um, high-flow nasal oxygen. If you were going to reduce, create a sort of uh, a league table of procedures which were uh, aerosol generating and, and increasing the risk of infection, then high-flow nasal oxygen would be quite low that and, um, and at risk of relegation if the season wasn't completely cancelled. <laughs> um, the supporting evidence for that is that the, is that the disturbance of air that the high-flow nasal oxygen produces is relatively local. It's within kind of a, around about a foot, and that's better with, with, with newer machines. There is a reasonable paper uh, in, in patients in intensive care with bacterial pneumonia showing no increase in, in spread of bacteria around the patient when they're using high-flow nasal oxygen, but the same study has not been done in viruses, so that's uncertain. And so there's a certain amount of caution uh, around high-flow nasal oxygen. I think that's caused some fear uh, amongst people uh, about its use, uh, and that fear is probably, um, I think, probably unwarranted. I would judge it as a procedure for which it's not unreasonable to be wearing airborne precautions, but it's still a, uh, but it's still low in that sort of league table of AGPs. PPE is only one possible area where we can mitigate against the risk of infection. Matt, are you aware of any of us, perhaps? One of the disappointments of the focus on PPE, and we got locally, we got very bogged down on FFP3 mask, mask fitting, surgical mask, fluid resistant surgical mask, was that a lot of the key messages were lost. And time and again, we come back to the fact that um, meticulous hand washing is fundamentally the most important part in terms of if you want to protect yourself from this virus, it is hand washing again and again and again that makes the biggest difference. Um, what you're putting on your face, if you've got contaminated hands, doesn't really matter. I think we're going to see this um, revisited, actually, um, in the general population when whatever, whatever happens in terms of releasing of lockdown measures, and there seems to be uh, a signal and a little bit of noise from governmental communications about the possibility of more general face mask wearing um, amongst the population as a whole, particularly perhaps ease lockdown and need to wear um, cloth face masks either for travel or shopping or for other bits and pieces. Um, and again, there's nothing, there's nothing magic about a face mask. It's something that's that works effectively, it mitigates your risk to a degree, but it's not the be all and end all. And certainly anything that causes you to touch your face more often than usual um, is a bad thing in this, uh, in the case of this disease. Tim, you've mentioned um, nine points in your paper, which I think is really important for, for any reader that reads, um, that reads the paper. 
about preventing cross infection and examples include avoiding the patients, visiting the staff who've been exposed to the virus and the hospital, uh, which is recently. Uh, hand washing, personal hygiene, as Max mentioned. The focus on PPE sometimes misses the point, doesn't it? That, that there are lots of different things that all need to be done together. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I think there are some people who have a hierarchy of of measures to uh, to prevent cross infection in of of of, <coughs> of high risk diseases, um, and generally PPE is at the bottom of that hierarchy. Um, you know, I don't think we should should dismiss the importance of PPE. It's important to understand and use PPE correctly, but I think there are other measures that are that that, that you know that go. I'm not sure whether hand in hand is the right um, phrase for it, but <laughs> but but, um, but you know, um, but go along with it. And it is easy when there is this distraction and excessive focus on PPE to forget those other measures. So one of the concerns, for instance, is is acquisition of um, disease from fomites. So while there's much debate about the extent to which um, COVID might be an aerosol or, or rather an airborne disease. Um, it's very clear that there's a huge amount of risk of infection from droplets and therefore from fomites. And so simple things like um, a proper, so it's, if it's a, as, as Laura Duggan has said, it's a fairly weedy virus. Although it's a, a hideous virus, um, it's, it's not very strong outside the body. And so it's so normal decontamination and normal cleaning processes will destroy it. Regular cleaning, cleaning more than two times a day of areas which are high transition like door handles and things like that um, when someone's in a room doing a procedure for a patient trying to touch objects as little as possible so that you're low risk of fomite infection um, and a very thorough probably two-stage decontamination of equipment that comes in and out of rooms and meticulous um, uh, uh, disposal of single-use devices, preferring single-use devices where where those are available. So so there is a li that list, I haven't gone through the whole list, but there's that list of nine, nine things, some of which are processes and some of which are procedures that accompany uh, PPE. I, I don't want to downplay the importance of PPE at all, but it's but it's important also to emphasise those other factors. Matt, what are your thoughts about the practice of double gloving um, when donning PPE? For example, in the use of sectional PPE, whether or not it should be the gloves that are washed or the hands that are washed. It's difficult because this is almost, um, it's not an entirely evidence-free zone, but it's, it's evidence that's um, difficult to interpret. Um, so the right answer isn't clear. Um, Locally, what a lot of places have done and what we've done is to um, routinely double glove. So keeping the, a base pair of gloves as your standard protection that follows you throughout your session. And then top pairs of gloves to change as we would normally glove if we were um, uh, if we weren't in a COVID situation. We've, we've also become very used to either alcohol gelling, which I know wasn't uh, recommended in some recommendations of gloves, but also using soap and water to wash gloved hands for sessional use of PPE and moving between patients of either washing or just changing uh, top pairs of gloves. Is this safe for patients? If it's safe, is it safe uh, for providers? Um, I don't know. I think certainly that does leave people when they're doffing at the end with a base pair of gloves that they can use to take off all their exposed PPE. And part of this process is making people feel safe. I mean, this 
it, what is clear from the data from um, Italy and China is that healthcare worker exposures to this virus is higher. Um, there's no doubt about it. So I think um, simple measures that are cheap, inexpensive and relatively safe that make healthcare workers feel safer in doing their job and coming to work um, have a great value. Um, the, the actual risk in terms of decreasing contamination may be low, but a lot of PPE is actually... Um, uh, winning hearts and minds, I think, and making people feel safe and valued and um, protected at work, which is something everyone should feel. Tim, do you have any thoughts about that specific? Um... Yeah, I, I, I do. I think so. There's a Cochrane review on um, PPE and uh, management of PPE, which is a, a lengthy document, as you'd expect with a lot of Cochrane reviews. Um, but it is full of almost entirely uh, low quality evidence or uh, absence of evidence, uh, constantly calling out for more uh, and better quality evidence. Most of the evidence that there is is uh, single studies, often in simulation and, and without any clinical outcomes. But the two areas that it does um, suggest there is uh, reasonably robust area, uh, evidence, one is doffing, that if you doff with a buddy who is reading out and directing you exactly what you should do, that you decrease uh, the mistakes made. And we know that of all the processes of donning, doffing and, and, and being in rooms, probably doffing is the, is the time when people are most likely to contaminate themselves. So it does seem a sensible investment uh, of time uh, to have somebody uh, for a few minutes um, aiding somebody by reading out a list of what they should do during doffing. And then the second area is that, is that double gloving one where there is um, uh, some evidence uh, that using a double using double gloving uh, during airway management decreases contamination of the environment by the intubator and of the uh, intubator um, from a, fr from the environment. Uh, so I think double gloving is a, is a is a reasonable procedure to do, specifically during airway management. Uh, and I'm slightly disappointed that it's specifically advised against in the PHE guidance. Of course, I think that that probably relates to single use. So how you translate that to sessional use is um, slightly more head-scratching. Yeah, because I guess a lot of intensive care units have moved towards the sessional use of PPE for patients that are cohorted in zones or in negative chamber rooms, etc., which I guess is reasonable, isn't it? Yeah. Matt, your love of advanced trauma life support uh, is, is well known. So can we talk for a second about cardiopulmonary resuscitation? Because... This has seemed to be a, an area of controversy where perhaps the guidelines that have been issued aren't in keeping with what a lot of clinicians believe or, or, or what a lot of people are practicing. Do you think that this is an area where, where we've gone wrong? I think this is an excellent example, um, specific example of one of the challenges and perhaps failures of the whole management of the COVID information system. It's just one, it's a very specific example. Um, and it's not to criticise directly any of the bodies involved, but it does illustrate the points, um, I think, quite nicely. So we've, we've had um, professional groups producing completely competing guidance, neither of which have a particularly well justified their stance, either in terms of... Um, an evidence-based approach, a grading of the evidence they've looked at, why they've looked at things uh, in order to draw their conclusions. We've had very, uh, very simple uh, statements. It's been borne out um, on Twitter and on the internet. It's a very public disagreement. And that's something that when we, there are many things that we'll look at in terms of the 
the new the new world and how we manage things. And this will be one example of thinking about exactly what we do with guidelines like this. Now, what's clear is that both sets of guidelines, either that um, chest compressions are aerosol generating or not, both can't be right. And a lot is to do with the interpretation of the evidence. Um, speaking directly to our microbiologists and virologists, they feel it's relatively straightforward and quite clear. They felt that compression in CPR was not aerosol generating from their reading of the literature. Um, and it's been interesting that actually the expert opinion in many of these guidance has, has been largely ignored. Um, my, some of my colleagues in intensive care have been unhappy with things. I've used the analogy of pointing out that if someone from an unrelated specialty came to the intensive care unit having read one paper from maybe one of the Ardnet's papers on how to manage ARDS from uh, 20 years ago and suggested on the basis of that they knew how to manage ARDS and everything else that we were doing was wrong. Um, I suspect they'd be in rel relatively short shift. But in the period of about eight weeks, um, particularly in social media, we appear to have developed a lot of experts in microbiology, virology, epidemiology and public health medicine almost overnight. I think analysis of that evidence is complicated particularly when you look at how these models are created and very similar um another answer would be you know thinking about the work tim's done in terms of tracheal intubation if we were to look at the tens of thousands of studies done on tracheal intubation a lot of them will be relatively simple models either benchtop models with mannequins or a very selective population with lots of variables, it can be very difficult to draw broad conclusions as to the optimal way to undertake tracheal intubation on the basis of those. But it's far more complex than that because often what we take in a research model won't mirror what we see in a clinical situation. You can find any evidence to support whatever it wants, whatever your individual beliefs are, whether it's, um, uh, whether it's aerosol generating um, or not. What would help going forward would be if these groups actually published the evidence um, behind it, graded the evidence correctly, as we would for most other guidelines, and also produced um, a list of the members of the groups. So actually how many of the groups that made the comments were experts in infectious diseases, virology and microbiology, and how much... Um, uh, so, and, and how many of those groups um, were not. So, we, so actually, if you're an on-the-ground clinician, you can help... Um, you can help judge exactly what you want to do. At the moment, it's just confusion, um, particularly with Resuscitation Council taking a very clear uh, stance that they feel it is, uh, and uh, other groups saying that uh, it isn't. And at the end of the day, there's a patient at the end of it. Donning is a complex procedure, particularly for those people who don't do it regularly, so outside critical care. And there's no doubt that if you're saying you need to don completely to start chest compressions, you will get delays in CPR with, I suspect, um, a knock-on effect as a result. There was a, an interesting um, paper from Lombardy in Italy uh, looking at uh, out-of-hospital community arrest rates during the period of their COVID pandemic. Uh, and they, they saw a far lower rates in terms of bystander CPR and suggestions that there was uh, lower survival rates overall. And obviously that's so I think we just need to be cautious about... Um, uh, the, the guidance we produce uh, and how 
and how dogmatic we should be in terms of its production. I'm 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 not an expert in this area. I, I I'm I'm not prepared to sort of to, to pin my colours to the mass and defend it or not. What I do know is that our local virologists and microbiologists are absolutely clear that they feel this is not an aerosol generating procedure. And as such, I have faith in that view, and that's the one that uh, that's the approach that I've taken. Tim, do you have any thoughts about the particular scenario of PPE and cardiopulmonary resuscitation? I don't have strong views about it. I, I, I agree with a lot of what Matt has said. I think it's highly unfortunate that there is a that there's a a two effectively diametrically opposing views um, from people who've looked at the same evidence. So I, I've I've read the the systematic review that Ilcor produced to inform their statements and. I found the evidence uh, not compelling one way or another, and I found a slight disconnect between their evidence and their recommendation. Um, but but I agree with with Matt that, that for instance, the statement by PHE is is uh, so short and terse as to be um, uninformative because it doesn't really uh, inform inform the debate. Um, so I think it is it is complicated. There is the, the reality is that such is the level of of concern about, amongst uh, individuals that I think in the majority of settings, and particularly there are a lot of um, colleges and and um, professional bodies who are siding with, and and I think it is a matter of taking sides almost, who are siding with the resuscitation council. That I think the reality is that that in most settings people will be. Or donning airborne PPE. It is worth remembering that the Resuscitation Council guidance does encourage early defibrillation with someone wearing droplet level PPE, and that can so three defibrillations before anything else is done. So, so it's not that everybody has to stop and do nothing, but I I agree it's an incredibly contentious and, and problematic area. I guess someone reading your article will perhaps be able to decide for themselves what level of PPE would be appropriate for them when faced with that scenario. I think so. Yeah, I guess so. Hope so. And <laughs> um, one one final question, um, Tim. As, as as we now begin the phase of thinking about relaxing lockdown restrictions, do you think that fluid resistant surgical masks are going to become the norm? Uh, do you think there's enough evidence that they will help to reduce R naught and keep the pandemic at bay? So, do you mean within hospitals or outside hospitals? Outside hospitals. Right. Okay. So I haven't heard anybody talking about the public wearing specifically fluid resistant surgical masks. Um, you know, there's talk about people wearing. Yesterday, I heard somebody talking about um, wearing um, a vacuum cleaner bags over their face, and, you know, making masks out of that, and various various things which will which will act as filters. And I, again, it's one of those areas where there isn't a clear answer. I ha- so what appears to be the government's um, line that they that they trot out, which I think actually is quite a sensible line, is that there is. How do they put it? They put um, weak evidence of a marginal effect or, or, or something like that. And I think that probably is the circumstance. There's been a fairly public spat uh, between a, an Oxford and a Cambridge academic about it in the BMJ. And it's very difficult to know whether that's helped anybody, whether that's uh, created light or noise, as one of them has put. And it is one of those circumstances where the evidence is so uncertain that one has to balance it with other factors. So if it does remove access for, you know, there is, there's no doubt that there is pressure on supply lines and pressure on, on getting uh, appropriate PPE to hospitals. 
So when you hear of people restarting their factories, as I did this morning, and saying that everybody's in PPE, which they've managed, everybody's wearing face masks, which they've managed to to acquire, to access, then you have to think, well, what are they using? Are these uh, filtering face piece masks? Have they been f- uh, uh, fitted if they're using them? Are they using something else? Um, are they u- all also using social distancing appropriately? Are they using that instead of that? If they've accessed them from somewhere, does that mean that there are fewer masks in, in, the, in the supply chain for, for hospitals and places where they will definitely be used appropriately and where the need for them is probably greater? So it throws up a, a whole lot of questions. And... It's, you know, PPE and, and infection control protection is one of those areas where it's very difficult to prove there aren't monsters in the wood. So as soon as someone says that something is scary and it might be dangerous, what's the harm in total body PAPR and airborne precautions for everything? It's very difficult to dissuade people of that. So once again, I don't know the answers. I think the need for, for individuals wearing particularly filtering face pieces so in public is probably zero yeah it's clear that if you wear a face mask its greatest value is in perfect in protecting other people from yourself um and the degree to which it it protects you from other people around you is probably much smaller and it's probably worth people remembering that to start with that might reduce the amount of, of masks that are worn if i was traveling on the tube in london where the um prevalence of of covid is probably highest in the country um and i was going to be in a packed train uh where it was inevitable that i was going to brush across 20 or 30 other people uh, then i might think about wearing a face mask Um, but that's one of the few circumstances where i think because if the evidence is small and there's this and it's small for a small is it is weak for a small effect um then it's logical only to wear it in areas where there's a where there's a high risk so thank you very much, Tim, and thank you very much, Matt, as well. Tim's paper, Personal Protective Equipment During the COVID-19 Pandemic, which is a narrative review, is available now. Uh, it's free to download and free to read. It's already been cited four times. It's been It's got a high altmetric score. And if you're going to read one thing from the paper, I'd send you to Table 2, which shows the various different types of PPE, so contact precautions, droplet precautions, and airborne precautions. And I think for me, that's the key part of the paper. But also, please make sure you check it with the anesthesia blog. Tim's written three excellent articles about the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, the first one in early March was read over 60,000 times and hopefully went some way to um, alerting people to, to plan and prepare. So thank you very much, Tim. My pleasure. Thanks, Mike. Cheers, Matt. Thank you, Matt. Thanks, Mike. Pleasure as always. And we will see you next time for the next anesthesia podcast the anesthesia podcast